as the shuffle sort of takes place, uh, if you're remaining seated and you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Genesis chapter 1. Just as sort of a, a precursor as we get settled, if you've got a hard copy Bible in front of you and you want to also like mark somehow Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to jump to there. If you're on a device, that'll just be a few little swipes and taps for you when we get to that part. But Genesis 1, mark yourself in Ephesians chapter 1. Before we get started with Genesis, um, on this Sunday each year, Liberty Christian Fellowship joins with churches and organizations across the nation in order to affirm our belief in the sanctity, dignity, worthy, our worth, and value of human life. Scripture in many places reminds us that all of life, in every person and in every moment from beginning to final moments, is infused with meaning and value. Scripture reminds us that from the moment of conception when life begins to one's final breath when it ends, human life is of inestimable worth. And any conversation about the sanctity of human life must begin with the grace and wonder of God, who creates life in his image with care and intentionality, who ordains the days of life, but whose good plan for all of humanity has been marred by the destructive and deleterious effects of sin. God's desire for humanity is flourishing, a flourishing that's according to his word and his commands. The reality of sin is such that to our own destruction, humanity often chooses otherwise, and many times does so at the expense of lives intentionally and wonderfully created in the image of God and for the glory of God. We here at LCF, as a staff and a leadership team, we reject the notion that the upholding of life's sanctity and worth at one stage means the rejection of it at another. And though these are difficult conversations that are often fraught with challenges and sometimes even resistance within our prevailing culture, we believe it is possible to both uphold and strive for the flourishing of life from the womb to the tomb. We also believe that the church, above all, or all other organizations or entities, can and should give itself over to, among other things, the protection and care of human life at all stages in order that God be glorified, the gospel be proclaimed, and humanity be loved, served, and cared for. I could highlight an array of ministries and partnerships here at LCF that work toward that end, but this morning I simply want to highlight two ministry partnerships that are built upon our belief in the sanctity of human life. The first is Liberty Women's Clinic. Since its founding, which happened actually out of this congregation, LCF has partnered with Liberty Women's Clinic, which is a a crisis pregnancy center here in Liberty. It aims to provide care and support for both babies in the womb, as well as women and families who find themselves in physical, emotional, mental, and often spiritual turmoil. Liberty Women's Clinic offers an array of services and support systems that aim to care for and support all parties who find themselves in the midst of an unplanned or even potentially unwanted pregnancy. Throughout Liberty Women's Clinic's existence, Liberty Christian Fellowship has provided both financial and programmatic support, which continues on today. If you would like to be involved with Liberty Women's Clinic in any way, you can talk with Jamie, Paul, or Missy Adams here in our congregation, or you can go to their website and find out how it is that you can be involved within all that they do. The second 
ministry partnership that I want to talk about is actually a, a new uh, ministry that we're launching here through the life of our church. And it's in partnership with an organization called Caden's Closet. Caden's Closet exists to provide support for foster families and foster children. And we'll be opening a closet here through LCF that will serve the Clay County area. And as we begin this partnership, we thought it would be helpful for you to be able to see the ways in which you can be involved. So if you would direct your attention to the screens. Hi, I'm Stephanie Means. Uh, I am the director of Caden's Closet Liberty. Uh, what Caden's Closet is, is basically a community closet uh, that acts as a resource for foster and adoptive families. Caden's Closet provides the physical, tangible needs for families, things that, like toiletry items, uh, clothes, diapers, formula. A lot of times these families have little to no warning that these children will be brought to their homes. Uh, maybe as little as just a few hours and it's impossible for those families to be prepared to accept children at all different stages of life. In my case, I had two hours warning that an 11 day old baby boy would be brought to my home. I was fortunate in that I was in a room full of women eager to help me because I just so happened to be at my Bible study that day. Most families are not that fortunate. There's no way to have everything that you would need for a baby within a few hours. When a family comes in, they are able to essentially shop. We will uh, walk alongside them, we will meet them, we will forge relationships with them and meet those needs of the children. Uh, with every changing season, with every new placement, they are encouraged to come back again and again. So Caden's Closet is 100% volunteer and donation based. That means the community can help by providing those items. They can be dropped off here at Liberty Christian Fellowship or uh, at our closet located at 1021 Liberty Drive next to the church. People in our congregation can partner with Caden's Closet by donating their time and resources, sharing about Caden's Closet Liberty within the community, and engaging with our shoppers, forging those relationships, and uh, just supporting the foster and adoptive community in that way. God has called us to care for the vulnerable, and realistically, not everyone is called to foster or adopt. This is a way for the church to get involved and link arms with those people and support them while they care for these vulnerable children. Uh, Stephanie's here, usually over here. Stephanie. Stephanie's over here. Um, she is our point of contact who is getting... Caden's Closet up and running. Our hope is that it's available and um, known and is able to be accessed here in, in the month of February. And so 1021 Liberty Drive is just the church house that we own just south of uh, the building here. And so that closet will be in the basement down there and will be available not just to families from within the life of our congregation, but also those within our broader community. And that really is our, our hope in both our partnership with Liberty Women's Clinic and our partnership with Cadence Closet, but as well as through other ministry partnerships that we have, is that our belief in the sanctity of life would be something that is tangibly impacting the way that we do ministry in our broader community. So that uh, yes, we're providing for and seeking the flourishing of human life here within our congregation, but beyond our congregation and into our wider surrounding area, that the gospel might be proclaimed and God might be glorified. And so Liberty Women's Clinic does that in the li lives of the unborn as well as families who are struggling with uh, how to go forward in, in 
uh, unplanned for pregnancy. Cadence Closet does that for children who have been born, found themselves in the foster care system to care for both those children, but also to support the families who are seeking to provide them with care. And so um, our heart here at LCF is that the collective passions and gifts and resources that we have can be a blessing out into our community that proclaims uh, not just the gospel and the goodness of who God is, but also the way that we value and uphold uh, the worth and dignity of human life. And so there are other programs and ministries that you can be a part of um, if, if you're looking for ways to sort of invest your time or your resources. These are two wonderful options. There are others. If you're curious about those, you can reach out to anybody on our staff and we'd love to sort of point you in a direction that might align with your passions. And so you can send us an email and we'd love to do that. Uh, I'm gonna pray and then we'll jump into Genesis. God, we thank you for this morning and for the gift of life. God, each and every person in this room, each and every person that's ever existed, your word tells us was fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together intentionally as a reflection of your goodness and your grace. God, it's our prayer that as a congregation, uh, we would uphold the value and the sanctity of each and every life. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that seek to enter into difficult conversations that exist in our culture on that topic. God, that you would give us a resolve to not feel like we have to just move to one direction or another on a binary scale. Lord, but instead that we can uphold the full, robust, beautiful picture that scripture gives for the sanctity of life. God, would you use our congregation to serve this community toward that end. God, would you give us eyes that see the needs and the vulnerable in our midst, hearts that long to use our resources in order to care for them, and the outlets or the handles to grab hold of so that we can do that as a church family. God, we love you. We're thankful for Christ, what he's done for us on the cross. We pray that in all of this, you are glorified and the gospel is made to look beautiful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Uh, I want to start this morning uh, in working through Genesis chapter one here in a little bit of a unique way. And so I'm going to ask you to like turn to your neighbor and have a brief conversation. Now let me give a couple caveats. Your neighbor could be your child or your spouse there. That's wonderful. Your neighbor might be a stranger and you might be like aggressively introverted or potentially shy. I get that. If that's the case, you can just like speak the answer to this question into the air and you don't necessarily have to have a conversation with the person next to you. I get that that might be challenging for some people. But here's what I want us to do. I want you to turn to someone there or just speak it into the air. What's God like? But what I don't want you to resort to are the things that we talked about last week if you were here. So set those traits aside and, and real quick, maybe 30 seconds, have a conversation what is God like? Ready, set, go.
All right. This will be fun and exciting. Let's just shout some of these things out. What's God like? Loving. I heard loving. What else? Uncomprehendable. That's good. Faithful. That's good. Someone said powerful. What else? Amazing. That's a pretty good answer. What else? Understanding. That's fantastic. Holy, that's great. Gracious, graceful, that's, that's wonderful. I want to submit to you, like we could say a lot of other things, but I want to submit to you this morning that the only reason you know those things is because God created this place. Now, on the one hand, you say, well, of course, Tim, because if he hadn't created this place, I would not exist and thus would not know. So set that logical piece aside. <laughs> The only reason you know what God is like is because he created a place in which to display to the universe what God is like. I want to take the next 30 minutes or so to explain what I mean, and this is the landing place, that all of creation is the theater in which the glory of God is made known. All of creation is the theater in which the glory of God is is made known. We're going to do a little bit of recap over the last couple of weeks. If you've been here, they'll just be refreshers. If you haven't been with us as we've been starting this Genesis series, there are some important foundations that uh, I want us all to just hear and sort of remember. And then I want to answer what would be the next logical question. Last week, we worked with some questions that maybe a child would ask of the first portion of Genesis 1-1, and they would ask those because they don't have the same like framework quite yet built in their mind that many of us have. I want to answer the next logical question that all sinners on the word created. And then I want to finish by talking about what it is that we mean when we talk about worship. And so if you've got a Bible open in front of you, this is Genesis 1-1. I promise after this morning we'll start to move faster. <clears throat> it's 10 words in English. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A brief recap as we launch into talking about that, that verse. On the one hand, understanding the book of Genesis is challenging. And so having some firm kind of ground to stand on is necessary as we come in over the next 30 some weeks and look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. On the other hand, having that foundation is important because Genesis is actually laying down the groundwork for what the rest of scripture is going to be about, particularly the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. And so as we kind of get these foundations square in our mind, we're not only helping ourselves engage in a sermon series, more broadly than that, we're helping ourselves be able to engage well with scripture as a whole. Now in the first week of this series, we just kind of answered the question, what is the purpose of the book of Genesis? So the book of Genesis introduces us to God and his purpose in the world. We talked about that it's a theologically interpreted historical memory, particularly of the Israelite people. The book of Genesis is all about God. It's theologically interpreted. It describes the origin and identity and blessing of God's chosen people. It hinges on the themes of God's blessing and his curse, which are set alongside humanity's actions of good and evil. The book of Genesis narrows our focus from the universe as a whole down to one specific people, descendants of Abraham, and their particular relationship that they have with God. My illustration from that first week was that reading the book of Genesis would be like sitting down with an ancient relative and asking, how did we get here? And they say, 
Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then they start to unfold a narrative for you. Last week, we just looked at the first four words in the first verse. In the beginning, God. And we said, what are some of the questions that would maybe be asked? What is that God like? When did he start? Does he change? Those kinds of questions. And we said that God is uncreated, eternal, independent, infinite, and unchanging. And that humanity, we are the opposite of those things. We are created, temporal, dependent, finite, changing. We ended last week by talking about the nature of the Son, who without surrendering his divinity took on humanity, came into the world and died to redeem to himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And the hope in that exercise over the first couple weeks was just to like build a framework for ourselves about what this book is and the immensity of the God that it describes. We need to do our best to remember the truth of God's bigness and yet stand in awe of the fact that we can't fully comprehend his bigness. We get pieces of it and enough that our brains can kind of put some verbiage to it, but he's beyond the best that our brains can do. We need to hold those two things in tension. We also need to hold in tension the truth of who we are in our smallness on the one hand, and yet on the other, the fact that that big, immense God is personal and loves us. We have to hold those two things in tension. If we get out of balance on any of those four things, we can end up with thoughts about ourselves or thoughts about God that are out of line with the truth of the biblical picture. And so there is a logical question in my mind as it relates to the fifth word in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. And if you were having some conversation with your child, I think the logical question would be, if everything you said about him is true, why did he do that? He's totally content back there in eternity past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uncreated, independent, not needing anything, unchanging, eternal. Seems like he had things going pretty well. Why do the fifth word? And you might say to yourself, look, Tim, my child is not asking that question. To which I would say to you, your child asks why about literally everything. (laughs) And so as you're talking about this really big God, and you say, well, he created everything. And your child says, "Uh, pause, why? And you want to rush to the answer, because he can. Can we get on with the family devotionals, please? This is taking forever. I would submit to you that that moment is such a fantastic opportunity for a conversation about why that majestic, eternal, immense God would create this place. In the beginning, God created. That's seven words in Hebrew, 10 words in English. The word for God, if you look through Genesis chapter one, that's what God is exclusively referred to, is the word Elohim. Now the word Elohim is a Hebrew word that was just used in blanket form for God or lowercase g, gods. And Genesis chapter one is telling you that unlike polytheistic culture where there are multiple gods that we could worship and they have origins, 
Genesis 1 is telling you there is Elohim who has no origin, but instead gives origin to everything. In the beginning, God, capital G, originless, created the heavens and the earth. He's not like these lowercase g gods who were created and have origin somewhere. He's totally different than that. He's the origin of everything. Now you get to Genesis chapter two, if you've got a Bible there in front of you, you wanna flip over or swipe or whatever you need to do. Look at verse four. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At that time, the Lord God, we've got a little bit of a different name there. The Hebrew word for Lord is the word Yahweh. When the Old Testament uses the word Yahweh as the name of God, it's typically referring to God in relation with humanity, specifically in relationship with his covenant people, Israel. So remember, Genesis is narrowing our focus. It makes sense that it would start with this big transcendent God who has no origin and gives origin to everything. And as it narrows your focus, it would start to use the personal name. He is transcendent and huge, Elohim, but he's also Yahweh who relates in covenant with his people for a specific reason. He is Yahweh Elohim in chapter two, as we start to narrow our focus from the universe down to this one particular family. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created. Hebrew word there is the word barach, B-A-R-A. He created. All throughout the Bible, we're told about humanity making stuff. You're gonna make an ark, build a tower, form bricks in Exodus. Moses is gonna lead the Israelites to build a tabernacle in the, in the wilderness. Solomon is going to lead Israel to build a temple. Those English words used to describe those activities are translated as form or make, or fashion or build. But the Hebrew verb bara, which is used throughout the Old Testament, only ever has God as its subject. Humans can make and form and build, God creates. He's the only one in scripture that does that. Why? Well, that's because God creates from nothing and humanity makes from the stuff that God created. We're gonna get later into Genesis and we're gonna talk about this creation mandate where humanity is literally told to like rule over stuff, make out of what God created. What did God create? The heavens and the earth. Now, our Western brains read that and say, aha, this is giving me an order, a series, a how that God did. He created, he caused everything to come into existence and he made the heavens, that's the place where he lives. And then he did the earth and that's the place where we live. Not quite. That statement, the heavens and the earth, would be like a Hebrew idiom, a way of saying that God caused everything. Literally, heavens and earth is not heaven like we think of heaven that we're gonna go after we die. It just is sky. God created the sky and the ground. The best way to think about that in English would be to say that in the beginning, God caused like the whole kitten caboodle. All of it that you see, he caused to come into existence. The whole construction of the organized universe happened because of God. God who has no origin, yet is the origin of everything. The God who has no beginning, gave a beginning 
to our nice little container here that exists within our solar system, inside our galaxy, inside the universe. And he created it all. And so, why? Why would he do that? He was uncreated, eternal, independent, infinite, unchanging, and enjoying the unity of the Trinity in a perfect sort of way. Why would he do something that invites into things all the madness that we see and experience here in the world? I would submit to you that all of creation is the theater in which the glory of God is made known. I want to start from kind of the middle of things and work back to the beginning. And by the middle, I mean I want to start at the cross. All of creation is the theater in which the glory of God is made known. When we talk about God's glory, typically what we're talking about is his majesty, like his worthiness, his supremeness. Some theologians like to say his weight, like he is this heavy thing. What we aren't talking about when we talk about God's glory, is one of his qualities. God is not glorious among other things. Glory is not one of God's many qualities. So when you turned to your neighbor and you described God and you said, well, he's glorious and loving and patient and amazing. Somebody over there said. God's glory is not one quality among others. His glory is not a facet of his being. His glory is the sum total of all that he is. The best way that my brain could think of to illustrate that would be like movie ratings, or if you're a reader and you use Goodreads, like your Goodreads rating at the end of a book. You could talk about the various facets of that book. You know, I I really... Loved the plot, but the characters felt kind of flat and two-dimensional to me. Or I really loved the characters, but the plot wasn't great, and I didn't really care what they were doing. I got to the end, and the end was not satisfying. But then you give it a rating. Ah, three stars. Three and a half. The evaluation is the result of everything put together. That is like God's glory. We see all of God's infinite qualities, and taken together, the evaluation is he is glorious. It's the sum total of who he is. John Piper in his book, Providence, says it this way. God's glory is not any one of his perfections, but the beauty of all of them. The perfectly harmonious way they relate to each other and the way they are expressed in creation and history. When we talk about God being glorious, we're talking about all that he is coming together and displaying the fact that he is majestic, supreme, worthy. He is weighty. He's glorious. And so, if when we talk about God being glorious, we're talking about all of his infinite qualities coming together in perfect harmony, where do we see that most clearly? We see it at the cross. Asked another way, where do love and justice, patience and wrath, grace and truth, mercy and judgment, holiness and forgiveness all converge into one spot without sacrificing any aspect. It happens at the cross. And so this is a reworking of our chart from last week. Not to say that last week's chart was wrong, but it introduced an idea, and now we're going to clarify it. 
the faders, if you will, were around God there before creation last week. And they had little words, love, just, grace, mercy, holy. In eternity past, without creation, God was infinitely all those things. How would you have known? How would you have seen that God was infinitely loving in eternity past? How would you have seen that he was infinitely patient in eternity past? So all we did was we took the faders and we slid them over to the cross because it is in that spot where all of God's infinite manifold perfections come together in a perfect way without sacrificing or diminishing any of them in such a way that God is seen as glorious. Love and justice, neither compromised, both in perfect harmony at the cross. Patience and wrath, grace and truth, mercy and judgment, holiness and forgiveness. Nothing compromised in any degree, all existing in perfect harmony, converging at the cross. All of the infinite aspects of God's nature scream through time and space in a perfect harmony that saves a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to himself. And that is to the glory of God. Now, I don't ever want to say something up here and just hope that you take my word for it. So if you've got Ephesians 1 marked in your Bible, I would invite you to flip there. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will for the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Why, why did God choose you before you were you? Why did God create a place to put you before you were you? Why did God deem that the son would come and die on the cross before there was a place for him to die and before you were you? For his glory. The display of his glory. Jump down to verse 11. In him, that's the son, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who have already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. That just means that the Holy Spirit seals us for eternity until the redemption of the possession, until we take hold of of what's been promised to us. Why? To the praise of his glory. Why did God save you? For his glory. Why have you been sealed with the Holy Spirit? For his glory. All of that happened, we're told, before the foundation of the world. So without getting bogged down in all of those questions today, because we're inevitably going to have to reckon with them when we get to Genesis chapter three and the entrance of sin into the world. Before we get to all of that, why 
before the foundation of the world, did God plan to send the Son to save a people for himself, for the display and the praise of his glory? So why in the beginning did God create the heavens and the earth? For the display and the praise of his glory. There had to be a place for that glory to be displayed. We would have no conception of the love, justice, patience, wrath, grace, truth, mercy, judgment, holiness, patience, forgiveness of God were it not for this place that he created. And thus, this is the theater of his glory, which sounds like a grandiose statement, but that's literally why this place exists. And then at every step along the way in the biblical story, God is revealing himself to be all of his infinite qualities. As he interacts with Adam and Eve, or Noah, or Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, and Rachel, Joseph and his brothers, as God interacts with Moses and the Israelites in slavery and then in the wilderness, as he interacts with all the judges and the kings, both the good ones and the evil ones, as he speaks through the prophets, as he uses the nations outside of Israel to bring exile and judgment upon his people, we see his glory. All of his infinite qualities playing out in time and space that we might see who he is. As his son is sent into the world, we see his glory. And then at the pinnacle, as the sun hangs on the cross, we see the manifold perfections of all of his infinite qualities in absolute harmony. We see his glory. The heavens and the earth that he creates are the theater where the drama of his glorious nature plays out in order that all of creation in the universe would know and enjoy and respond to that glory. Psalm 19 verse 1 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. God was complete and independent. He had no need. He was totally fulfilled in eternity past. And he creates, not as needy beneficiary, but as benevolent, gracious benefactor. He creates in order that creation might enjoy him. By his grace and to his glory, this is the place where that enjoyment is to play out. And so I just want to do a thought experiment before we move on to talk about the practical kind of application side of this. Okay, God exists back there for all of eternity past. He's timeless, right? So he's got no beginning, no end. We said last week that timeless also means he's present in every spot of time at all times all the time. It's just timeless. He knows no succession of moments. Okay, so the best our brains can do, at some point back there before creation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are present in perfect communion with one another. And John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the capital W Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And the capital W word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? The word is Jesus. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so some point back there in eternity past. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, embarks upon the work of creation. We're told that everything's created through the sun. We're told that the spirit is there hovering over the surface of the deep. They form land. 
They're forming what would eventually be Israel, the city of Jerusalem. Pulls up a hill. Right in the sun. It's the there, present, right? Says, that's a glorious hill. Why? I'm gonna die on that hill. But it's not just I will die on that hill, right? The sun is eternally present in that moment on the hill. Like I'm dead on that hill to save a people for the glory of God. It's not that God creates everything it all goes awry. The father and the son scramble and they say, you know, I think we'll send you and we'll figure out how to make the divinity and the humanity thing work and we'll get it all to play out and we'll see what happens. And Jesus ends up on a hill on a cross dead. It's that in eternity past, before creation, at creation, at crucifixion, Jesus says, that's a glorious hill where all of our manifold qualities are going to play out in perfect harmony for the display of our glory so that humanity might enjoy us forever. The theater of God's glory. And so what exactly are we talking about when we talk about Worship. That's where I want to end this morning. I mean, we're certainly not just talking about singing, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. Heaven doesn't sing like we know singing. Scripture tells us that mountains, rivers, clap their hands, shout. We don't, we don't hear singing. When we talk about worship, we're certainly not talking about the hour and 15 minutes or so that we set aside on Sunday morning so that we can all come here. I mean, maybe your idea of worship would expand a little bit beyond this set-aside time into like your quiet times, however often or frequently those happen. But I would submit to you that we're not talking about the singing, we're not talking about this time. When we talk about worship, we're not talking about your quiet time. Worship is the heart's right response to right recognition of God's glory. Now, sin thwarts that at every turn. Sin makes it so that we don't recognize God's glory rightly. Sin makes it so that even when we do recognize the glory of God, our heart does not respond to it correctly. Such is the totally dulling and blinding effect of sin in the human heart. Romans 1 tells us that for his, that's God's, invisible attributes have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. That's the reality of sin. And then Romans spends 11 chapters unfolding the glory of God in salvation. It culminates at the end of Romans chapter 11. This is how we closed our, series, our, our service last week. Paul erupts into praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then what is the very next verse? Therefore, that's a heavy word. It's doing a lot of lifting. In response to all of that, 
Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies or lives as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. The right response to the recognition of God's glory is worship, not singing, not church service. Those are both good things. Not quiet times, also a good thing, but a heart that acknowledges and receives and enjoys and rejoices in the glory of God in all things. So let's just play that out very practically. It's easy to start with the big stuff. You woke up this morning, I don't know what time or what it looked like outside when you woke up, but it snowed overnight and it was that particularly like wet kind of snow that sticks to everything. And so you look at the tree in the front yard and snow has completely encased the branches and the limbs of that tree. And you look outside and you think, oh, this is a really beautiful snow. And then you move on. Oh, Job, have you seen Job? Storehouses of God's snow? Like you look at the snow and you think, oh, it's really pretty. Or do you push through that thought to the one who created it, stores it, and sends it? It's not just like, oh, the snow is idyllic. It's God is glorious, and my heart responds. You see a sunrise, and it's not just like, oh, cool, the way the light refracts and creates different kinds of light. No, God paints that, hangs it in the sky. If you wake up at the right time, you get a glimpse of it. You sit down to a good meal. You cut it up, put it in your mouth, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is delicious. And you could stop there and essentially just worship your taste buds or your stomach. Maybe you kind of shove through that and you think the person who created this, oh my gosh, they're so creative and they've got such incredible skill. Or you could shove through that and say to yourself, God created me with taste buds to receive the flavor of this food. I need it to survive, but he made it so that I can enjoy it and not just survive. And he created a person with the creative capabilities to put all the flavors together and make this thing taste delicious. And I don't just need to worship my stomach or my tongue. I can glory in who God is because of the way that he's put that together. There's just beauty in what humanity has made with what God has created, whether that be art or architecture or music or technology. If you've traveled recently, you got into a thing with like 150 or more other people and it lifted off the ground and transported you and then placed you safely back on the ground in another place. And you can say to yourself, man, that pilot, he's pretty good. Or you could say to yourself, God made humans with the ability to figure out how to make that massive thing lift off the ground. Look at the glory of God. We talk about worshiping God in grief. I mean, the glory of God on display in his kindness and compassion and empathy meeting you in your places of darkest pain. Worshiping God in that place does not mean that you have to come in here and sing. There could be weeks on end where you come in here and you cannot sing a single word. And yet, brothers and sisters, you can worship. 
you can respond to the sum total of who God is as displayed to his kind presence with you in the midst of your darkest seasons and you don't have to utter a single word. You can just let people sing over you. That's worshiping. You get the echoes of God's image in humans. I mean, when was the last time you just praised God for the grace or the patience or the wisdom of a friend? Now, this, we gotta be careful here because what you don't wanna do is worship the friend and place upon them a burden that no human can possibly bear. But you shove through that and think to yourself, God in his providence created that person and me and brought us together in this season of life and with all of their care, or with all of their grace, or with all of their compassion or all of their empathy, God in his kindness has brought that person into my life to care for me right now. When was the last time you thought to yourself, oh my gosh, God, you are just so glorious for doing that. You didn't give your heart over to worshiping the person. You pushed through that person to the glory of the God who created that person. That's worship. And at the end of all things, Revelation gives us this little peek into what is happening like in the throne room of God. There are these creatures there and these 24 elders Romans 4 verse 9 says that whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, when they do that, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship him. They cast their crowns crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you've created all things. He put together a theater in which to display his glory. And all of that culminates at the cross. His glory is on display there in the throne room and thus they worship. His glory is on display here in the heart's right response is worship. I don't know what your familiarity is with certain hymns, but in 1225, St. Francis of Assisi penned the words to a hymn that I don't know is sung all that much but it's all creatures. I'm just gonna read the seven verses of this. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise him, hallelujah. And now St. Francis is going to start working through elements of creation. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Thou rushing wind that art so strong, ye clouds that sail in heaven along, thou rising morn in praise rejoice, ye lights of evening find a voice, thou flowing water pure and clear make music for God to hear, thou fire so masterful and bright that givest all both warmth and light, dear mother earth who day by day unfoldest blessings on our way, the flowers and fruits that in thee grow, let them God's glory also show. And everyone with tender heart, forgiving others, take your part. Ye who long pain and sorrow bear, sing praise and cast on God your care. And thou, most kind and gentle death, waiting to hush our final breath. Thou leadest home the child of God, as Christ before that way hath trod. Let all things their creator bless. And worship him in humbleness. To God all thanks and praise belong. Join in the everlasting song. 
Oh, praise him. Hallelujah. Because he's created a place where his glory can not only be made known, but can be received and enjoyed and rejoiced in by those that he has created. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and sing.